Life. Dignity. Security. Freedom. Freedom. Respect. Justice. 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 Equality. Equality. Remedy. Protection. Fairness. Fair trial. Welcome to all our listeners on CJTR Community Radio at 91.3 FM and over the internet at cjtr.ca. We can also be heard on SaskTel Max at Channel 806 and Access Communications Digital Service at Channel 700. Wherever you are, welcome to Human Rights Radio, hosted weekly by Amnesty International volunteers. Our theme song is titled 30 Words, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, written and performed by R.E.M. and a collection of musicians from around the world. I'm Jim Hutchings, and with me is our special guest, Heather Lunar-Rose. On your website, you describe yourself as an activist, author, educator, passionate advocate of marginalized peoples, and the marginalized voices in all of us. You founded and run Luna Rose Prisoner Support on sheer dedication, tenacity, and commitment to not letting people walk the darkest road of their lives alone. Welcome, Heather. Hi there. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me here. And it, it's a real pleasure, uh, Heather, to have you. And uh, perhaps you could, we could start off by telling you a little bit about yourself and uh, sort of how you started down this road. Okay, um, well, um, I grew up with real social justice-oriented um, parents, and I think that spurred me on early to activism. Um, I'm also a survivor of a lot of um, violence in my youth, um, sexual violence, psychological violence, and I have a, an amazing mother and father who are both um, passionate about fighting for the underdog, um, but I also um, grew up quite quickly experiencing a lot of violence and it spurred me early on to to feminism and to active activism um 
I think I identified a lot with um, marginalized people being bullied, being experiencing a lot of um, sexual violence, as I said. And I um, oriented from early on into wanting to prevent, um, wanting to work in gender-based violence prevention. So I also became a single mom really early in my life and um, was um, orienting my education and, and work towards just getting through uh, her and I and some of maybe the, the mental health issues and trauma and stuff that I had as a result of suffering a lot of violence. And that's really where I focused um, my passion and my um, early 20s was, you know, advocating for people on the margins of, of especially sexual and gender violence, you know, single moms, sex trade workers, people in the, you know, LGBTQ community and people on the margins of gender and sexual orientation. And um, um, interestingly enough, um, I, uh, what I, um, I guess I could segue into, you know, what happened was I went overseas. Um, I was uh, living on Salt Spring Island, raising my daughter by myself, and actually working as a researcher in gender-based violence prevention uh, on Salt Spring Island, BC. And I just felt that my soul and my passion to be doing meaningful, purposeful work in the world that makes a difference and challenges the status quo on many levels just wasn't happening by being kind of a, a bureaucrat and writing reports about how better to help um, youth um, face violence and deal with it. Although it was, you know, important work, it just didn't feed my soul. So I took my daughter um, backpacking around Southeast Asia about 12 years ago. And I thought that I had a vague purpose or a vague idea that she and I would maybe, um, or that I would be volunteering and maybe put some of my efforts and education and 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 uh, work to use um, maybe in in helping combat um, sex trafficking or human trafficking or working with some grassroots women's organizations maybe in Thailand to help um, to help see how I could contribute and learn from the grassroots feminist organizations there. And instead what happened was I um, read a book written by a man um, named Warren Fellows who had spent 14 years um, for heroin trafficking in a prison in Bangkok. And the name of the book was The Damage Done. And honestly, that book haunted me. It haunted me because I had no idea that condition, prison conditions like that still existed in the modern world. Like to me, they seemed medieval. Um, you know, 100 men to a cell, um, the 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 um, kind of minimum standards of prisoner treatment that um, I would expect in Western prisons were not there at all in terms of um, food, sanitation, med access to medical, anything like that, and that there were thousands of men in those prisons who had been caught in Thailand's war on drugs uh, and, um, you know, Canadians, Americans, Europeans, and that they were there um, suffering incredibly harsh sentences, or incredibly harsh by my viewpoint, 100 years or death penalty type sentences for, on drug charges. And learning that, it just, it really transformed my life. I mean, you never know those moments that are going to change your life, but it turned out that it did. I went to the Canadian Embassy, and I asked them in Bangkok uh, if they had any Canadians who needed visitors. And they said that they did. And they gave me a list, and I went to the prison, to this Bangkwang prison, which is a very infamous prison that holds about 7,000 men 
in the city of Bangkok. And I visited a Canadian, and his first name is Adrian, and he has no problem me telling you a bit about him. And he was serving a 100-year sentence for um, selling ecstasy. And his wife is in the women's prison in Bangkok, serving a 100-year sentence as well for his crime. And um, it really transformed my life. I had no idea what to do. I had learned that you can bring anything to these men, and that was true at the time, although it's no longer true. But 12 years ago, that was the case. So I brought bags of cooked chicken and rice and books, and I tried to you know, imagine what somebody far away from home, uh, far away from their home country in this kind of condition might want. And things changed and snowballed from there. I realized that I needed to reach out to these people and um, these people from all over the world who didn't have family members like the Thai inmates do to come to the prison every day and talk to them and bring them food. And that's kind of where my journey starting um, Luna Rose Prisoner Support um, started. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, that certainly answers uh, one question that I had. I was, I was wondering just how you go from backpacking to becoming concerned with uh, the plight of, of prisoners. Um, what sort of activities, if any, do they have in, in prisons? Uh, you, you said that you're able to, at one point, uh, bring them anything you basically wanted, and that's not the case anymore. So what would they, how would they fill a day? Um, they fill a day basically by existing and by surviving. There's no, um, you know, there aren't um, activities. These are not prisons that are at all like what one conjures up in one's mind when one thinks of a prison in a Western industrialized country. So um, they're locked up from 3 p.m. till 7 a.m. in cells that have anywhere between 20 to 120 people, which is basically a room, and they all sleep uh, on the floor, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, um, head to toe. There's not, I mean, it's really just a room that has, that can, that's filled with bodies. And there's no activity in that place except to simply endure. There's only water through the night, and um, in the mornings they can, they are unlocked, and they go out into a compound, and that's where they can do um, military drills or um, wander and be. Um, they spend a lot of time being counting, counted in the hot sun. Um, there's a lot of counting going on because there's thousands of inmates. Um, there's not, it's, you know, there's not much beyond that. Um, the prison systems in Thailand are not really built for rehabilitation. They're built under a, a different model of, um, you know, um, being um, penalized for, um, you know, crimes against um, a society and needing to take account for that in totally different ways than how our prison systems would be run here. Yeah, I was just thinking that uh, theoretically prisons in Canada are um, supposed to be based on uh, restorative justice. Right. And uh, although looking at the sort of things that happen in prisons in Canada, we know that they haven't reached that goal yet. No. But no. they're not even attempting to do it in uh, in Thailand. Then. That's right. The, the, the philosophical model is not even there. I mean, certainly in Canada there's a long way to go before, the you know, yeah, the model gets achieved in terms of there's a lot of improvements that can be done here before it comes to a restorative justice in practice, but that model is not even being used, you know, in Thailand. Um, um, I also um, 
when it, when people talk ask me about the work I do, it's it's kind of hard to imagine, you know, the other side of the world, different circumstances. And so I ask people to think about instead, um, you know, what it would be like. These are these men that I go and see are often um, they're mostly Westerners, but I help and support men from all over the world. Um, for example, a lot of the poorer countries. Twelve years ago when I first met Adrian and realized that I, my soul just felt this stirring that I couldn't abandon these people to be left alone, um, I started asking him if there are people from poorer countries who don't have any embassy and don't have any family with the capacity to come and visit them. So I also support men from, you know, Nepal, Nigeria, Tanzania, Burma, and um, many other countries, and not just Westerners. Um, but to think of incarceration in a foreign country where it's not your language, not your culture, and you have a 100-year sentence, the incredible loneliness and the incredible disconnect from humanity. And let's face it, people do ask me a lot of times, you know, are these a lot of these men innocent? And I think the public perception is that there's a, a large degree of innocent people who go to prison in Thailand. I'm not sure where that mythology came from, but mm -hmm. by and large, um, these are not innocent people in the sense of innocent of the crime that they've been convicted of. However, that's not the issue. The issue is the circumstances under which they're trying to exist and trying to maintain hope. We do have a prisoner transfer treaty, Canada and Thailand does, so that if you are a Canadian who has gone overseas to Thailand and you have been caught with drugs or you are dealing drugs, you are engaged in criminal activity there, you will be given a very high sentence in Thailand, like, you know, for example, 100 years, as many of these men are. But as a Canadian, you can look forward to serving eight years of that sentence and then being able to apply to be transferred home to a Canadian prison or to Canadian parole. So this is the kind of the faint hope that they all hang on to. But you have to understand that the level of sanitation, the, the disease, the mental illness, the high degree of incredible um, psychological and physical pressure on them is so great that surviving eight years in a Thai prison is extremely difficult. And that's what I'm doing when I go there is I'm visiting these Canadian and European and men from all over the world and trying to reconnect them to the web of humanity. This is not about, you know, guilt or innocence or deserving or not deserving. This is about, um, for me, needing to reach out to people and say, no matter who you are, uh, we all deserve to have dignity, to have hope, and to know that, that, that we still matter. And which, just on a personal note, is a really interesting trajectory for me, having come from a real place of surviving a lot of male violence, you know. And in my 20s, my early activism and stuff was very much geared towards supporting women. And it's been an amazing journey for me for the last 10 years to be now supporting wounded men and to really have my... Although at the intellectual level, I mean, I, I, I care, you know, deeply about all of humanity and anybody suffering, I really, I think in my 20s, really kind of dismissed men as being the perpetrators of violence. I mean, and I, you know, I wouldn't have said it so much like that, but it's been an amazing journey for me being able to bear witness and give hope to wounded men and really see that wounded people are wounded people are wounded people. That, you know, whatever we do, um, violence is not going to change and, and it, unless we 
reconnect everyone to the web of humanity and say, you matter, I see you, you belong to humanity still, and you don't deserve to be forgotten. And I think personally, having grown up, having been forgotten a lot as a child and left in situations that were extremely dangerous and extremely harmful to me and feeling like I had no one to fend for me, I think that's ultimately, you know, despite my politics, despite my absolute passion and advocacy for social justice, I think it really comes down to me, a personal need to feel that nobody would ever be left alone to suffer a nightmare alone without somebody going, hey, I see you, you belong, and you matter. And so I go and I counsel those men now. Um, like I mentioned before, um, I'm no longer allowed to bring food or vitamins or antibiotics or clothing or toothbrushes. Those are things that I was able to bring to them for the first seven years I was doing this work. I would come back to Canada, I would fundraise, and I would bring over um, you know, care packages to these people. Um, the prisons don't allow that anymore. What happened? Um, no books, you know, n no additional items. But I do, and I go to, what I do when I'm in Bangkok is I go into three different prisons every day and I visit men and I talk to them in, you know, in English, which is a huge deal to somebody from a Western country who doesn't get to hear that around them very much. And, um, and bear witness to them and, we, and bring laughter and hope and, and some, you know, I do have a, background and counseling people victims of violence as well so you know being able to also just counsel them as well but mostly it's about maintaining that human connection letting them know that they haven't been forgotten mm -hmm. i just wondering what what happened to cause the the change in policy that uh, you're unable to bring the the care packages anymore um i think it was part of a well ostensibly the the government said that it was about trying to stem the corruption and the bringing of drugs and illegal cell phones into the prison, and they're really trying to clean up the prison so that there isn't, you know, corruption and drugs mm -hmm. in the prisons, and and um, they've done a really good job of stemming that. There used to be a lot of drugs inside the prison, and that's largely been stopped. Um, I'm not sure that it was the care packages that the visitors were bringing that were full right. of drugs, but that's another issue. Um, so, in part, to try to, yeah, stop the corruption, corruption and illegal things coming into the prison, there's just no longer any um, allowance of additional items for the inmates, which is extremely difficult. I mean, um, I can't supplement their meager food rations, which is only getting fed, you know, twice a day, with any supplementary food. That's extremely hard physically on them. And also, there's all those ways in which, you know, being able to bring in any kind of care package from home. Um, Void their spirits and gave them a sense that they still had some kind of contact with the outside world. That's gone, so that's um, it's been very hard on them. I would suppose that there would be the, the majority of them would have no contact with their family whatsoever. But uh, are there family members allowed to visit, or are they able to visit? Uh, Absolutely, family members are allowed to visit. In fact, technically, only family members are allowed to visit, and so. Um, you know, I, I go there kind of on behalf of their families, but you're, you're right about the fact that most of them are no longer in contact with their families for many reasons. In part, I think, because a lot of the foreigners, and when I say foreigners, I mean people who are not Thai, you know, so anybody from around the world who are stuck in those prisons in Bangkok, a lot of the foreigners who go to Thailand and are caught doing drugs have already had, you know, a previous history and trajectory in their own lives of maybe um, addiction issues or you know, drug dealing in the past, and then maybe don't have um, a relationship with their family, like they might be ostracized or estranged from their family anyway. So a lot of them 
don't have contact with their families, but the ones who do, certainly the families can come out. But, you know, that's an expensive and difficult endeavor. So the, the really lucky ones, you know, for example, uh, you know, I've seen a few Canadians and, you know, they're really lucky to have the moral support of their families, but their families, you know, over here don't have the means to, you know, get over there and see them regularly. So they might see them maybe once every three years for a couple of days. Right. Do you have a sense of... Uh what percentage of the inmates would make it to the eight years? Um, uh, did you have, very, no, yeah. I don't really have a sense of that because it's very difficult and complicated. Each case is different, and I also see a lot of men from countries who don't have prisoner transfer treaties, and so they're not even don't even have the option of doing the eight years. And then the Americans actually have a different transfer treaty hammered out with Thailand, so they only have to serve four years. Wow. So I, the, the Americans have a greater success rate because four years in a Thai prison is much more survival, for survivable, and there's a lot less long-term permanent psychological and emotional and spiritual damage done and physical damage. So uh, the, you know, the neat thing for me is after 12 years of doing this work, there have been a few American inmates that I have seen repatriated, come home, and I'm in regular contact with them now, and seeing how they're able to cobble together, you know, post-prison life and, and try to move forward. Are there other people uh, there doing similar work to what you're doing? There are. There's a, a group of British people who, by and large, take care of the British inmates, and so I don't tend to take care of the British inmates because um, there's a few charities doing that. But it's really a handful of individuals who, like myself, have really, um, for whatever circumstances, really um, chosen to, to take this on. And you could multiply all of us by 100, and that wouldn't take care of the absolute need that there is over there just in the Bangkok prisons. Um, and then the only other group of people would be Christian missionaries. So I do see Christian missionaries, but that's a, a completely different agenda, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not from a, a human humanity, humanitarian perspective, although, you know, some people argue it might. They are more interested in trying to save somebody's soul, so that's a mm -hmm. very different agenda than mine. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I guess it goes back to, again, uh, what do they do through the whole day? And... and uh, um, I would imagine that people who who are more introspective might have a better chance of survival. People who can can um, do mental things in their head um, mm -hmm. because they, like you say, are there any books? Are there anything? Is there anything there that that like anything like a library or? Uh, There's no new books coming in. That's part of what has been difficult. But because there was. Um, books that used to be able to be mailed in and brought into the prison. Um, there is an old library-ish of, of, of books that, um, you know, I'm sure that they've all been through. Um, but yeah, there is a, still a substantial um, number of books that they can read um, that I'm sure have all been gone through extensively. But you're right, I mean, I see the very, very different coping mechanisms among different people. People who ch choose to spend their time um, you know, really contemplating on how they got to where they are, taking responsibility for that. And then I do a lot of work with the men who are interested in doing it um, on, you know, really how each one of us as humans needs to make make sense and make meaning and and of our own lives and where we are. Um, you know, and just, you know, psychological and cognitive tools around, you know, um, eliminating 
I mean, it sounds so flippant when I say it, and, and I don't mean to say it flippantly, but like, you know, working at uh, our, our thought patterns, uh, you know, to stave off things like depression and anxiety and, um, and the despair that are really common in there. So um, some of that is just me hanging out and we just tell jokes and, and laugh for half an hour, but there is also a lot of people who are interested in doing more spiritual, meditative, and gaining some cognitive tools to really find if I'm going to be here for a long time or maybe even the rest of my life, what does it mean to make meaning in this place and how do I derive some purpose of being here? That's a really, really difficult thing. A lot of them do tune out in, in mental illness or physical disease and it's incredibly difficult, difficult place to survive. There's not a lot of hope in that place. It's a very dark place. Yeah, I'm just, um, I'm just thinking that it would be a kind of a, an object lesson in how to be um, because that's mostly what you're uh, what you're doing is is practicing the art of being. Um, but I was I was also wondering uh, as far as uh, the r relationships that the inmates have with each other. Uh, are there some difficulties there? Like, uh, are some people more at risk than others? More at risk. You know, from say, abuse from other prisoners or abuse from, sure. uh, you know? I think it, uh, generally along um, financial lines and also just maybe more vulnerable in some of the classic ways. So some of the older inmates who might be more physically vulnerable to younger inmates. And then the inmates from poor countries who maybe don't have any means or resource um, in the prisons. So definitely, you know, from Burma and um, India and Nepal. Um, but all depending on on whether they have any kind of financial resources on the outside, because each of the inmates has a prisoner account. So now that their family members can't bring. Uh, food directly to them, what they can do is bring them money and deposit money into their account to allow them to buy certain things. So, of course, that creates massive class disparity in the prison around the haves and the have-nots. Um, and um, so the, the, the absolute abject poor student, uh, um, inmates are going to have to um, work for or be more subjected to harassment or um, being used by the other inmates. Right. Poor, yeah. Well, Heather, that brings us to the bottom of, uh, of our uh, half hour. And so we're going to take a break here. Uh, we're speaking with Heather Luna Rose, who is an activist. Uh, basically, you're, you're in Salt Spring Island, but you make trips to Thailand. and, and uh, Yeah, I spend five months in Thailand each year, uh, Monday to Friday in the prisons. Right. And we'll be right back after this break. Thank you. I can hear through the joy and through the tears all the children of this earth both blessed and cursed. So will I this perfect day, should I spare a thought to pray, ask for only what's sufficient for the day. A little sun, a little rain, a little money now and then, and the knowledge of enough to eat tomorrow. Keep the locust from our fields, take your portion of the yield. 
For the folk less blessed by fortune than are we. Decent health to work my life, wine and candles with my wife, sufficient store laid in to get us to next harvest. The door bounty from above, and a husband I can love. A little wisdom in such portion as I earn. Time to stare into the fire. And indulge in small desires And a moment now and then That I can savor A little time to eat and drink Time to pause and time to think Just enough to curb despair And keep me whole If the recruiter comes around he will find me underground. The empires of ambitious men do not concern me. Calm the hearts at angry beat. Still the earth beneath my feet. Keep me from suspicion and from jealousy. Not for me the pride of place Or entitlement to grace Why should I be spared my share of dread and sorrow? Keep our children from the grave From the plague may we be saved Make our suffering no more than we can if I listen, I can hear Through the joy and through the tears All the children of this earth Both blessed and cursed So will I this perfect day Should I spare a thought to pray Ask for only what's sufficient for the day I thought there was more to it than that. <laughs> Very odd. My timer is, is still going on my uh, on my CD player. Hmm. Very odd. Anyway, Heather. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that, <We're back>. was, <laughs> that, that was that was Tanglefoot. And um, I was explaining to you before that uh, they've gone through the country a few times. Uh, never played in Saskatchewan here, though. Uh, I know they've been in BC and Alberta, but for some reason or other, uh, uh, did not manage to get a gig here, unfortunately. However, I am talking with Heather Luna Rose, and uh, we're talking about inmates in prison in Thailand. Uh, they've landed themselves there, generally speaking, because of stuff they've done. Uh, I think you were saying earlier that. You mostly drug charges, mostly drug dealing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so there aren't too many innocent people involved there, but uh, uh, they've they've landed themselves in a in a rather dire situation. And I think I get a lot. Yeah, and I get a lot of people asking, you know, why do you go around the world to help people um, and not take care of people in your own backyard? And um, it's an interesting question worth looking at because um, 
you know, I think implicit in that question is a value judgment that, you know, the people in my backyard or in my neighborhood or in my country are more valuable than the people in somebody else's yard or farther away, or that, um, or certainly uh, uh, that criminals are less deserving somehow of human dignity because, um, you know, I hear a lot from people, you know, if you can't do the time, you shouldn't do the crime. And I think um, ultimately, you know, it, it comes down to that I am taking care of my community. I'm taking care of the human community. And we only feel that we belong when we feel we deserve to belong. And these people have been told they don't belong in the human community anymore. You've been caught with drugs. We're going to throw you behind a wall for 100 years and ask you to fend for yourself and survive in circumstances that don't meet the minimum standards of how you would want any human being to be treated. And um, that's just unacceptable. It's unacceptable that this can be done to people. And so in reaching out to them, I'm saying no one deserves to be left out of the human community and we all belong in the web of humanity. This is not about, um, you know, deserving or not deserving, you know? Right. Well, Heather, uh, I think one question that perhaps people are thinking here now, uh, all this costs money. Yes. <laughs> and uh, just traveling there costs money and uh, and staying there costs money and um, uh, I'm just wondering how you manage to meet your costs um, I'm a little bit crazy that way I um, I am a low-income single mother except that my daughter is now grown um, but I started this when she was <laughs> 11 year or 12 years old and I um, I don't actually, I started a non-profit society when I came back to Salt Spring Island, so um, Luna Rose Prison Support is a registered non-profit, and that means that I do um, stay accountable to a board of directors and let them know about my activities and stuff, but I have, I received no funding, no government funding, no grants. I basically self-financed this for 10 years because I am so determined that it's the right thing to do to reach out to these people and that... Um, I put on fundraisers every year, and what that looks like is um, getting my local community of Salt Spring Island together and saying, hey, um, you know, can you help support me to support these people? But mostly I self-finance this. I come back to Canada every spring, and I work a million odd jobs, and I work, um, you know, waitressing, taxi driving, um, <laughs> commercial tuna fish, whatever I can do. Um, just and sleep on people's couches or rent out cheap rooms and basically self-finance this by saving my own money and then going over to Thailand in the fall and and doing that again. It's not sustainable. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying this is ideal. It's not. It's not like I want to do it this way. But I'm. Yeah, I don't receive funding. So every year I put on a little campaign to raise funds, and I have just put on another one um, to try and get the public to care to support. But it is hard for people to get behind helping criminals on the other side of the world, you know, um, when that doesn't sound like um, something maybe closer to their home community. So it's, it is an expensive endeavor, and I, I operate this on a, on a shoestring, but I basically do it by saving up my own money and putting all my money towards it. I've not received a salary for this in the 12 years I've been doing it. What, what sort of um, amount of money would you get on an average fundraiser? Um. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, last, last year I had an Indiegogo campaign and I reached out to friends and family and people out on social media and um, I got 
I think I got about $6,000, which was, you know, fantastic outpouring mm-hmm. of, of people to be able to do that. And, and um, you know, that covers the cost of a plane ticket and to Thailand and, and um, uh, a little bit of some, some of the expenses of the work. And then the rest of it I covered all myself. Yeah. And I understand you've got a petition that you're going to be presenting to the Justice Minister next week. Uh, what What is involved with that? What are you asking the Canadian government to do? Yeah, um, I haven't involved the Canadian government so much before, but I do find more and more Canadians on my roster. And this year I'm wanting to involve the Canadian public, hopefully, and the Canadian government more. Because I go into those prisons every day and I'm helping people psychologically, emotionally, and um, really get hope and to to hang on and offering my services and my skills for for free. I'm paying I, I'm paying to do this um, because it, because I, I feel compelled to do this, and I absolutely um, want the Canadian government to to get behind supporting our Canadians overseas more. Um, what the Canadian embassy does if you're incarcerated in a foreign country is they will come and visit you um, about twice a year to check in and take off a box and let Ottawa know that you know, you're still incarcerated overseas. And they will facilitate um, that your family knows that you're in that prison. But uh, they certainly don't provide any of the kind of like um, counseling or advocacy around getting medical support and all of that kind of stuff that I provide for these Canadians. So I am asking, I'm going to the Justice Minister um, next Monday because Parliament's going to be in session or out of session and she will be in her home riding in Vancouver and um, I would like to petition her to ask I'm not actually bringing a petition I would like to, her to meet with me to, to see how the Canadian government can partner with me um, to, to help me to provide these services for Canadians overseas in Southeast Asia because I, I don't see why I should be funding this myself, even though I will continue to do so because I absolutely can't imagine, I, I can't let these men be forgotten, men and women. But um, I would like the Canadian government to support our Canadians overseas. It costs, I mean, there's a moral argument, a humanitarian argument for not letting people fall into the utmost despair and, 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 and come back to Canada maybe after eight or ten years because there's usually a few years of paperwork after they petition the government to come back to come back so broken that they can't um, function effectively in society as um, as human beings um, unable to work um, so there's a moral humanitarian argument absolutely but there's also an economic one and that's what I want to present to our government that by spending a little bit of money to help my organization, to fund my organization, to provide the services to these people while they're overseas, can allow them to come back to Canada with a lot more hope, connected to humanity, with some skills and some coping skills, and so, and and surviving, so that when they come back, they have a much greater chance of being able to build lives that are where they're not so broken. They're not a drain on the welfare system. They're not a drain on um, the um, mental health services and um, our health services, and they're much less likely to spiral into a place where they're committing crimes here because they have no other options. You mentioned uh, earlier that uh, uh, if you're an American, 
your possibility of getting out of there is four years because mm -hmm. of a different treaty mm -hmm. uh, compared to our eight years. Uh, is there any possibility that uh, the Canadian government might be interested in negotiating? That's a really good question. I'm not sure that I've pursued that angle at all because most of the Western countries that have hammered out a treaty with Thailand have generally come to the eight-year mark. So it's kind of I, it's more of an exceptional case with the Americans, huh. and so I'm not sure that that's there's much chance of renegotiating a treaty there or much political will on either side to try and do that. Yeah, I'm I'm supposing that uh, there would be some benefit to the Thai government. Uh, uh, if if it's four years rather than eight, there, there must be a reason for them to do that. Yeah, and I think the Americans are in a better position globally to offer incentives to countries to hammer out a different type of agreement than the rest of us can. Right. When you travel to Thailand, are, are you there by yourself, or do you sometimes have someone travel with you, or is it strictly a solo venture? No, it's it's a solo venture, but you know, over the years, I've definitely I I do have a website that describes the work I do, and um, I do get people who often contact me on my website and say, you know, I'd really like to help by you know visiting somebody and offering them a little bit of cheer or joy in their day, and so I'm often responding to people uh, and helping them access um, inmates at the prisons. So I've brought many many people to the prisons over the years that I've been doing this, and I help facilitate that as well. Not in every case all the time, because I do a little bit of vetting. Sometimes people are doing it for really the wrong reasons and could create more harm than good. But yeah, I do help a lot of people access these inmates. I literally just got an email this morning from a, a woman who had asked if she could meet a, a Canadian, and I helped facilitate by email that she go and see him, and it was really quite uh, wonderful for her and wonderful for him. For, you know, in the, in the loneliness and the, uh, the isolation, you know, when you get a visitor from overseas and from your home country, it's, it's a huge boost to your spirits. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you're visiting, how many, uh, how many prisoners would you be able to uh, interact with at a time? Do, is it like a... I'm allowed, yeah, I'm allowed to see one inmate per prison per day, okay. and so that's why I go to different prisons every day. So my actual schedule in a given day is really hectic. Mm. I'm, you know, driving through Bangkok traffic, which if anybody knows what that's like, I'm on my little motorcycle going mm. through the cars, wow. the first prison, registering, um, all the registration, the waiting, the paperwork, the frisking, the, all the stuff that entails to see one inmate for a half an hour visit. Then I'll be having a visit with him uh, across bars and glass, you know, through a telephone. And we do that, and then I leave and go through all the process of leaving, and then uh, get on my motorcycle and zoom to the next prison, go through that entire process again. You know, and I do that three, you know, three times. So I'm at. It doesn't. It's it's a very long, exhaust, emotionally exhausting and, and grueling day. And then in the evenings, I'm mostly responding to inquiries and or if the inmates that I saw that day were um, in touch. If they're inmates that are in touch with their family, you know, I'll try and drop an email to their family and let them know how they're doing. But that's very rare. Most of the inmates are not in touch with their family. So there's no uh, computers, no telephones, no, no nothing? No, absolutely not. You, you are their only line of communication. I'm, I'm their only, yeah, their only access to the outside world. I mean, you have to think of circumstances where they're absolutely cut off from the outside world. Um, so, yeah. So if they want to pass messages on to family, um, the only other way they can contact family is through snail mail. Or through, oh. um, so I do when I'm in Canada, I stay in contact with the inmates by writing letters to them, and they write letters back to me. 
Yeah. Wow. It it just seems hard to imagine that kind of an existence. So, have, mm -hmm. have you had a number of inmates uh, not make it and pass on before they reach their eight years? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, I've seen a lot of men over the twelve years, and some of them I just see a few times. Other than I've built long-standing relationships with, and I will see weekly, and have seen them for ten years straight, and I watch. Not only, this is something I didn't anticipate when I first got into this, I watch not only, you know, the hope and the joy and the magic we create in being human beings together, sharing our authentic struggles of what it means to be a human, how we grapple with all the things of that, and that's the wonderful joy I get from that. But also, as you can imagine, I also see uh, a lot of them succumb to um, mental illness, to psychosis, um, um, there are many cases of men dying in the prison, um, suicide, disease, those kinds of things, yeah. Do you think it might be possible, uh, or if anything is being done, to uh, to try to lobby the government to, to change some of the circumstances there? I don't think so. That's not really a... Um, that's not a realistic option in, in my mind. Mm -hmm. You know, Thailand's a sovereign country that does its own thing and um, doesn't take kindly to, um, you know, foreign governments critiquing right. their prisons. And, you know, that's, it doesn't, that's not, not a realistic option. I am sure that there are people in Thailand who perhaps, you know, might want to reform their own prisons, but that's, that's for them to do. Um, I'm more interested in, you know, I don't go there as an activist. It's not my place to right. critique their, the way that they do things. It's, as a humanitarian, I want to reach out to the people who are in that and, and um, help them to succeed at surviving something that, um, that gives them a better chance of success and rejoining um, humanity less broken. And you have written a book. Yes, I have. <laughs> How is that going? Uh, is, is it published? Um, yes, it's published. It was published last October. It's called Unforgotten: Finding Hope in Bangkok Prisons, and it's really a um, a kind of a journey over the ten years, a memoir of my my journey doing this work and the kind of the the issues I struggle with, the fact that I put all my energy and money and efforts over the last ten years in doing into this, and and the kind of the ethical, cultural and human challenges I face as basically uh, on my one-woman mission. I mean, I'm somebody who, for whatever reason, this has grabbed my soul, and I can't let go of doing this. And But, you know, I may have, you know, feminist ethics and politics and, and, and analysis of systemic oppressions, but I'm just a human being who, for whatever reason, has, um, has found my calling in reaching out to marginalized men in prisons in Bangkok and that's you know and they, those and I wrote the book not to do an expose on Thai prisons and how harsh they are and all that I think those types of sensationalist accounts exist and if people want to inform themselves more about uh, what conditions are like overseas that's that's um, that information is out there this book is really about the ethical um, and moral questions that are raised of what it means to be human and how we find meaning and, and purpose and place as humans in the world and how I try to do that in relation to these other men 
trying to find their purpose and place in the world as well. It's uh, it's a very personal journey, but it's uh, yeah, it's really exciting. It came out a year ago on Salt Spring Island, and. Um, I don't market it or promote it much, so I mean it is available on Amazon and Kindle, but it's only available to bookstores in Canada. So, I um, yeah, it's been wonderfully embraced in my community, and I get a lot of amazing feedback for it. But it's certainly not a Canadian bestseller because I haven't really put it out there. <laughs> is it uh, is it on your website? If they went to your website, could uh, if they went to my website, they could find the title and and the links to the Amazon and Kindle um, way to purchase it. But it's not, um, I don't, because I'm over in Thailand, you know, half a year, I can't really ship it to people individually. Mm -hmm. Right. So Amazon does that, yeah. And I'm curious what your daughter thinks of all this now that uh, she went with you initially, did she not? Yeah, and she's been actually to those prisons uh, a lot because, you know, she went with me when she was 12 and 13 and 14. And now she's out on her own um, living in in Vancouver. And, uh, you know, she's got a... A big heart, and she's thinking about going into social work. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> but, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, I don't know what she thinks of it. I think you'd have to ask her. I don't. Okay. I think I've, I've always been an unusual, radical, unconventional mother, and we have an amazingly close and wonderful relationship. She's the love of my life. I'm so blessed to be her mother. But I don't, you know, I don't really ask her exactly what she thinks. It's kind of, I guess, it's in some ways, it's normal for her mm-hmm. because. I'm her mom, so that's all she knew. Um, but yeah. <laughs> so you don't have real discussions about what's going on. She knows why you're doing it, and oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and she knows it's my passion, and, and she 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 absolutely supports me. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what she thinks about it in her heart, <laughs> heart in terms of how it's impacted her having that be a significant part of her um, childhood, really. Um, yeah, but I mean, she absolutely supports me. She's behind me 100, percent and we, you know, and she she knows that this is incredibly important to me. Yeah. yeah, and you you must have some allies there on Salt Spring Island. I do. My my home community here is very. Um, I mean, I currently do live in Vancouver, um, but I, I consider Salt Spring my home. I did raise my daughter here, and uh, I feel that it, it is a is a particularly kind of social justice oriented activist community here that that really helps give me moral support because. You know, I'm passionate about this, but at the end of the day, like, you know, people do ask me, don't you ever want to, you know, do you ever feel like stopping? And I have to be honest. I mean, I, I don't think there's a week that goes by that I don't want to quit. It, the toll it takes on me emotionally, um, financially, lo- logistically. I'm now a 44-year-old woman who hasn't gathered a salary. Like, I haven't, you know, I don't have a pension or savings, and yet I just feel so um, compelled to to not let these people be forgotten that um yeah it takes a big toll on me um and so i'm glad i have the moral support and some financial support from from salt spring for sure it keeps me going (laughs) so what do you think is going to shut you down eventually i don't know i don't know and i ask myself you know this is the time of year every year as i gear up to head back to thailand i where i I find the most kind of self-doubt and the voices about okay is it time to to put this on hold or to, to, to let this go and you know I've, I've done enough I, I know um, the tremendous impact I make in these guys lives like if it weren't for how impactful it was I couldn't continue to do this um, I don't know what will shut me down every year it remains to be seen and I know that when I hit the ground in Bangkok next month in November um, the purpose and meaning and the positive impact I have on a daily basis with people 
by just being human with each other is so huge that buoys me for the five months I'm there. I mean, that sends my spirits flying. So then it's hard for me to, to want to stop. Yeah. I mean, as Desmond Tutu say, my, says, you know, my, my humanity is bound up in yours. You know, I can only mm-hmm. be human. We can only be human together. And that's, it's, it's so apparent to me in those types of circumstances yeah. that, um, you know, being human together is ultimately it's what gives me purpose and joy to my life. It yeah. makes me feel like we all have a part to shine in the world, however small or big, and just being human together. I guess my final question here is, um, are you a religious person? Am I a religious person? No, yeah. not at all. Do you, uh, do you think there's any possibility that you might go in some religious direction as a result of this, or it's strictly... Not at all. I'm a, uh, I'm a, I'm a diehard atheist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm spiritual in the sense that, I mean, I'm social justice-oriented, and I, you know, I'm in awe of the, the magic of the universe and this crazy, crazy world that we live on. Um, but I think my atheism in, help, in, in part helps me, spurs me on, because I don't believe there's some place I'm going to go to afterwards with angels and people rewarding me for stuff. Like, that's just not my belief system. I believe that my, I have one life on this earth, and I want to make it about giving and being as, you know, as, as connecting us to each other rather than isolating us out of violence or fear. I don't know. Well, it's been, it's been great talking to you, Heather. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. I do actually want to make a quick plug that I, I, I need as much financial support as possible. So when I go to the Justice Minister, I would also love to ask anybody, you know, listening to, if you, you know, if you, you know, care about uh, anything I've talked about, please do visit my website. And I, and this month, the month of November, I'm hoping to raise, um, you know, six to $8,000 to help me get back there and do the work that makes an impact every day in the prisons. And anybody can donate by donating on my website. Do you see any signs of interest uh, in your in your uh, queries from the government, uh, from Minister of Justice or your MP or anything like that? Not so much, but uh, the, the, the PM's office, Trudeau, has sent me an, an email, not himself, obviously his chief mm-hmm. of staff, saying that, that there's a letter response coming to me, so I'm very curious to see what that's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but my local MP, also Elizabeth May, has expressed interest in meeting oh. with me. So I'm, I'm hoping, you know, to keep keep knocking on those doors and saying, you know, we can do better. It behooves us to do better. You know, there are so many marginalized people um, and so many, you know, people that need our support, and I can do this support for these people. I just need the support of our government to be able to do that for them. Okay. Tell us one more time uh, uh, what your website's called. So my website is called Luna Rose Prisoner Support, and so the, the address is luna-roseprisonersupport.org. And people can read more about the work and, and donate there if they, if they would. Thanks very much, Heather. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. As we close this week's Human Rights Radio on CJTR Community Radio, we hope you've enjoyed listening to and have learned something new about human rights for all people. If you have any questions about today's show or other human rights questions, email us at humanrightsradiocjtr at gmail.com. Past shows can be accessed by visiting humanrightsradio.org. Podbean.com. Pioneering human rights campaigner Peter Benenson said only when the last prisoner of conscience has been freed, the last torture chamber has been closed, the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a reality for the world's people will our work be done.